Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. Craig Finn and Seth Meyers first met in 2008, just after Barack Obama had been elected president, when Finn's band, The Hold Steady, played at Terminal 5 in New York City. Last week, the two sat down for a conversation in Meyers' office at 30 Rock, where he shoots Late Night with Seth Meyers, this time at the start of a very different presidency. In the intervening years, The Hold Steady has established itself as one of the best American bands around, and Meyers' move from Saturday Night Live to Late Night has showcased his brand of smart, understated, and increasingly political comedy, which has become an important part of the cultural landscape. So much so, in fact, that on the day they spoke, an extensive New York Times article on Meyers' coverage of Donald Trump had just gone online. Over the next half hour, you'll hear Finn, who has been both a guest on Meyers' show and sat in with his 8G band, talk with Myers about a broad range of topics, including making the jump from SNL to late night, the way Myers and his team reimagined the show in response to the shifting political climate, taking refuge in fiction and sports, an explanation of why Bruce Springsteen is the Harlem Globetrotters of music, Myers' favorite guests, the secret of a great skit and a great song, and much more. Yeah, I just put mine on silence, so we should be good. Thanks. Let me double check. You could be get you you could get calls on this, right? But that's just part of the deal. I uh, I did you ever hear? Uh, was it was it Mel? It was Carl Reiner on the Marin show. If you ever listen to that, and I don't think he knew what it was that he was doing, and he just took calls the whole time. He's like, "Hang on," <laughs> and it was really good. I'm, I'm glad Mark didn't edit him out or anything. Yeah. It was very good. It was like it was just an old Hollywood guy. <laughs> yeah, just, was, Hang on for a second. Oh yeah, it's yeah. so great. Like Carl Reiner still gets calls. That makes me really happy. And 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 agreed to do a show. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's really cool. Um, here's where I had written down for the start because the big article came out online with the Times today, and um, the one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it, from my point of view, is there's a part where Mike talks about. Um, Mike Shoemaker, your producer, talks about how when you started the show, he wanted some the storytelling. Yeah, and um, and I hadn't thought of that, but I, I, he meant an actual story, right? He did. It was funny because my first show, I had this story about getting a flat tire, being with my wife, getting a flat tire, and her needing her going into a diner basically to call AAA, and a guy of the at the diner saying, oh, I can fix your tire. And the guy came out and he did not expect to see another man in the car who had just completely had right. no sense of how to change a tire or what. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it felt nice. It was good. I like telling stories. Even when I do stand-up, a lot of it's storytelling. And so it became this thing that we tried to do. But then basically every day a shoemaker would say, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day. Do you have any St. Patrick's Day stories? And you realize at some point you just run out of stories. And... You have, once you get into a job where you do the same thing every day in the same building with the same people, I basically my life is now without stories. Right, right. Um, yeah. And so we, it just became very burdensome. It was really fun when I had a good one. Mm-hmm. And it became this thing where I was happy when anything out of the ordinary happened. Even if the outcome was negative, I was just thrilled to think, oh, this, got I got a day. I got a day. <laughs> you got story. one, yeah. Yeah, that was the issue is just how hard it is to have infinite stories. But a closer look, or the, the, the segment on the show, yeah. the closer look, I mean, tells a story in some way. Well, that is, again, I think, Shoemaker made that connection, which I had not, 
but I think it's true is basically now instead of having to come up with a story from my life, we're kind of trying to tell a story every day about what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to have a storytelling rhythm about it. Obviously, our show has a point of view, but we try very much to say this happened and this happened and this happened and, and make it have the sort of connective tissue that a good story has. Yeah. People ask me all the time about, like, you know, why do you write in characters? And I'm like, well, because songs about going to the grocery store and the post office aren't, aren't that interesting, right, you know? Yeah. And so I, I very much relate to that. But a while back, I read this book by Peter Gruber, who ran Columbia Pictures, and it was a sort of this weird business memoir. It was called Tell to Win. And it was extremely self-congratulatory, but it also had this great idea of telling stories and how he tries to make everyone the hero of the story, you know, when he's pitching something. And they can come in and, and, and do this important work by getting on board. And I think that's, I'm just interested, it seems like the closer look would be maybe one example of how people can kind of experience this as a story. I think also it's both telling a story and trying to tell a story that maybe they've heard in a way that is more palatable. Yeah. Here's this, you've heard these things that happen in the news and you feel one way or the other about it. But we're going to tell it to you with a bunch of jokes. We're right. just going to tell the same story, but in a different way, in a lighter way. And again, you know, I, certainly based on the outcome of this election, you know, not that we ever thought we were influential. You would certainly use this as an example that we were not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think there's something to making, uh, you know, I think there's something cathartic maybe about watching our take on the news that that it helps you process it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's been well documented that I mean I think the show has is succeeded in some way. I mean that's that's certainly a narrative certainly that's out hope there. So yeah. yeah. Uh that's part of what the article in the Times today was about. Um do you <laughs> I wondered if you felt, you know, you felt that because of this do you have you been thrust into a different situation than you would have if the election went the other way? Oh, definitely. Well, I will say that we were, again, again, I've admitted time and time again, even on the show, that this is not the outcome we expected. Right. And so we were having conversations about what the show would develop into based on the other result. And I think the knock on Hillary Clinton was that she was a conventional candidate. And having a conventional president certainly takes away a lot of the sort of footholds we find day in and day out with President Trump. So we, you know, we started saying, oh, we'll have to move on to pieces, closer looks about policies and closer looks about other newsy issues, which is still a long-term goal, you know, with hoping that there'll be a day where uh, this presidency will morph into something that we're all a little bit more familiar with and, and we can breathe a little bit easier and then start to talk about other stuff. But again, and we're doing this, I think we're, what are we, six days in or something? So it's, it's hard to tell how it's going to go um, once we get past sort of these big proclamations and executive orders and and confirmations. Yeah, uh, right now seems there's just so much coming out. There's multiple things per day. I mean, you could divide your Twitter up into like before noon. There's this one <laughs> yeah. outrage, and then there's like the noon to four p.m. and then we get to eight p.m. <laughs> yeah, and then maybe I watch sports for a little bit and don't. You know, I don't know. Sports become essential. I mean, sports is a big thing. I think fiction to me. Yeah, um, Jonathan Franzen wrote an article about a while back an essay I think it was him about fiction being a form of meditation yeah and I really believe that and I feel like I'm like looking for good books right yeah, now that's Be- a really good call um 
because sports is, I don't know. Well, the problem with sports, of course, is, I mean, I just suffered through this being a Steelers fan. You look forward to it all week, but then when you have the bad outcome, that didn't really provide you the relief you were looking for. Yeah, and the fans aren't always, like, to me, as I get older, the fans are sometimes troubling. Um, Right, and that is a real thing where, I mean, my perfect sports experience is kind of, uh, to use a word that's being uh, used a lot now for something else, like the bubble for me in sports is I really want to experience it in a solitary setting. Not I, I watched the Steelers game with my parents who were both so emotionally invested as well that that made me even more depressed yeah. watching it with them. Yeah, I mean, you only want to watch with friends if you win, and, and you're yeah. not always going to win. I can do, like, I'm down to... As far as going to it, I'm down to baseball where I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, NFL, I won't even, I won't go. Yeah. Uh, And hockey, I like, but uh, only in the good seats. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, But but baseball, I I took these British friends last year, and it was their first game, both of them. It was a son, a father and a son, and they were like, it's this is great. No one's even watching the game, yeah. and I thought oh, maybe that's why I like it so yeah. much. Well, that's I think baseball is of the sports the closest to a form of meditation. Certainly, yeah, yeah. It's funny. My just real quick. My father in law, who loves music and does not care about sports at all, which is a bit difficult because my wife then has never been around somebody who cares about sports, mm-hmm. and it's an impossible thing to process. <laughs> but I went to I took him to uh, the Eagles. We're at Madison Square Garden. He loves the Eagles. And we went to that concert, and he was it was so. I was like, oh, he's so much happier because when you go to a concert, you always get the outcome you expected. It's never, they yeah. never don't play Hotel California. Right, right. So he always gets the victory. And every song, he was so happy. And I was thinking, this is not me yeah. at a sporting event. That makes Bruce Springsteen kind of the Harlem Globe trotter. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and like pain and suffering is the New Jersey general. It's like yeah. you transcend it every night. Uh, right, you play against them, <laughs> but you transcend it. Yeah, you win all the time. Well, speaking of that, optimism. Like it seems like, when I watched your show, and I, I was on for a week before Christmas, and, and that was before the the inauguration, but still after the election, there's at least some effort, I feel like, on your part to be optimistic or at least say, like, I hope, I hope it goes well. Yeah, very much so. I feel like the two things, and I know there are a lot of people who have a lot of real-world reasons to be more pessimistic than I am. Like, I'm very careful about my optimism because... And I said this after the election, you know, again, this is, you know, when you're uh, uh, a successful white person in this country, a man, like there's less things that are going to affect me about his policy than other people. So I'm not telling everyone else to be optimistic because I understand that this is casting a shadow um, for a lot of people and I, I empathize with them. But I do feel like the two things that are really important to hold on to are, are one, a sense of decency and two, a sense of optimism, because I don't know how you just kind of put one foot in front of the other without both of them. And the decency thing is, I really feel like essential because uh, when you have a president who's succeeded despite his own personal eroding of decency, it makes indecency look very attractive. Mm-hmm. Or, and it makes indecency look like it doesn't, you don't pay a price when you express it. Um, so I think it's really incumbent upon uh, the rest of us to try to remember that. Especially, and you know, again, um, I'm not saying we've pitched a perfect game as far as never telling a joke that didn't cross the line, but I do want just anyone who would ever ask, like we spend a lot of time talking about that kind of thing, even yeah. when we're talking about uh, the president who um, 
who doesn't have a lot of respect for her. I feel like decorum, like we still talk about how to express it around him. Yeah, it seems like a, a, a leading by example situation or a, yeah. a way to, in small way to fight back against it. But at least lead by example, right? Yeah, I feel like that's the best. Certainly that's the minimum you can do every day is try to lead by example. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that the it's just strange times. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, I spent a week on on the show before Christmas, and it the, the energy of doing something every day was very striking. I mean, to be it was awesome in in that part of it in itself. I felt like it was so cool to go and build something. And obviously, there's a million people—not a million, but a lot of people working on it. And you're doing something that, and I I was up with the band, and it's all coming together, and then it's over. Yeah. And then you go home, and I was wondering if it's like like what a uh, like a trader on the stock floor, you know, or on the floor of the stock exchange must feel like. Like you know, my girlfriend's a nurse. Like when she walks away from the hospital, there's not medicine to administer. There's right. you know, it's it's going home, and I, I'm sure you have things you bring home. But the the energy of doing something that goes on every night versus SNL, which goes on one once a week. How is it different and and do you like it more? I do. The thing that's the thing that always scared me about these shows is, oh my God, doing a show every night. That sounds like a killer. Mm-hmm. But there's such different shows than what SNL is. And SNL, I thought it was just the fact that you put a whole week into a show, you know, that's what it killed you when it was bad. Yeah. But what really killed you it was a whole week until you got to do another one. Right. Like that's when it hurt. The not the leading up. It was that you know, or heaven forbid you have a bad show before a hiatus or the worst thing you could do is you have a bad season finale and then it just kind of, you can feel it like sticking to you for a whole summer. Here, you constantly are just trying to raise what an average show is and you kind of incrementally are doing that over time as opposed to swinging for the fences every night because, you know, the reality with these shows is even if even if we had our best show tonight, not everybody would be tuning in to watch it and it wouldn't change everybody's mind you kind of have to just incrementally push it forward and that's such a luxury and that's led to such relief of like I got home last night and I was talking to my wife and it was about you know an hour after I got home that she said how was the show tonight and I really kind of had to think back yeah I, you know I, I was you know because now you know the difference between a, a good one and a bad one I feel like um doesn't affect me emotionally the way it used to at SNL it's probably not unlike being on tour where it's like, you know, some shows are better than others. And and it's nice that when you have a bad one that you have another one tonight and you can say, like, let's try to, like, you know, dial it in. I, w- I want to ask you this. Like, how fast do you know? Because when you were here for a week, I go out and say hi to the audience every night. And pretty much, like, two minutes into just saying hi to them, I have a pretty good sense of how the show's <laughs> going to be because they are the biggest indicator of it is, you know, especially when you're trying to get laughs. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's interesting because uh, I, and I would say I don't, I don't know that early. I mean, you can obviously with rock and roll, it works a lot better in a packed house. Sure. So if you're, you sold 50% of the tickets and you know, you're seeing the back, like, uh, maybe this is how Trump felt on inauguration. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not going to be as good, you know. You're 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 excited, but when people are smashed against the stage and trying to get in from outside, there's an energy in the room that's going to be better. But you know, in your show, of course, there's the audience you're trying to get laughs, but you also have guests, and that's that's got to be some part of it too. Definitely, that's also though been part of I think the evolution of the show and the evolution for my personal evolution as being a host is putting less pressure on that and just 
the more people you talk to, the better you get at talking to people, all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of say to yourself, okay, well, you know, when I first started this, I would pour over the information about the guests and try to be ready for every possible thing they would say. And then the reality is, you know, I think if you, the more you pre-script an interview in your head, the worse it's going to go. So almost, it's almost, it's the, having an improv background, the place I use it the most, and probably the only place I use it at the show is, is during the interviews. Because there's a sense of, uh, you know, obviously sometimes you feel it's incumbent upon you to get a laugh from the audience to break the tension a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and so that you're thinking maybe a couple sentences ahead there. But usually you're just trying to be a listener. And the better a listener you are, the better the conversation goes. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it seems like the guests, like I was looking, I think yeah, last night, I didn't see the show, but you had uh, ta yeah. Coates. I didn't want to butcher his name. Uh Tonight, Matt Tybee? Yeah, Tybee's here, yeah. So you're obviously booking um, people uh, of substance. Yeah. Um, and in, in these times. So that's, that's obviously not an accident, right? No, especially, you know, again, we went through the most fascinating election. The election with the fewest, like, sort of historical benchmarks as to what it would be like until it happened. And so these people who covered it and spent a lot of time talking about it and thinking about it are great people to have on. And, uh, you know, the most interesting thing is uh, so many of them are uh, brighter than me and have put more thought into it. And it's so refreshing how many of them were also shocked by the result. (laughs) I feel better now about the fact that I was so wrong. Right. You know, when someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates can also admit he's wrong or Matt Taibbi can say, I never thought this was happening. I thought this was going to be a comedy show and it turned into this thing. Yeah, yeah. When, you know, there's something else in the article that that, um, struck me is that you, you recently had Kellyanne Conway as an interview and it was, it was really strong, I thought. I mean, I thought when I watched it, I was like, Finally, someone you know like, yeah. try at least tried, or at least took a good shot at at you know. There was one point where you said, "I'm very concerned about that," and that was. But in the in the article in the Times said, um, you said like, oh, "I I should have said something about the birtherism." Yeah. You know, is that more likely to happen? Do you think like I guess that's a question. Do you think people will continue to like that? Will continue to come on the show? I hope so. It makes for better television, and I. It would be very easy to constantly have on people who agreed with me. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of them in New York City, <laughs> yeah, and there are, and in yeah, and yeah, on these kind of shows, and in these kind of shows. And it was the week before uh, the holiday break. We had Rachel Maddow on one night, David Remnick on the other. Yeah, and they were they one. were they're so wonderful, and they've been guests a bunch of times. But I did have this sense of like, oh, these are there's some familiarity with these conversations, and. This show, it, you want to make sure there's enough, you know, that you're you're switching up the sort of pitch selection as far as guests go so you don't just end up, this is the place where people like this go. And, you know, the strangest thing is I don't know how many people like Kellyanne Conway there are in that administration who are kind of game to come on a show like this because that did require a real um, good sport vibe from her to do it. Of course it did, yeah. And it really helped... Um, that she had done things like Bill Maher's show over the years, and I think she understood what this kind of show asked for a slightly different thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, as so, you know, maybe she'll come back on. I hope she does. But it, at the same time, like, there's not a very long list uh, within the Trump administration of good sports. The, uh, the, the, the process they ta- you talk about in the article is thinking later, oh, I should have asked her about this. Yeah. How often <laughs> in other interviews do you, do you go home and say, oh, I should have, very probably, rarely. Probably not. Yeah. yeah, I figure. I mean, I think because, again, you know, you're, 
it's you want to teach yourself not to be precious about them. Mm-hmm. But there was a sense, and again, you try to be aware of them when they're coming. Every now and then, you have a guest that's going to require a little bit, you know, more boning up, more, uh, you know, readying yourself for, especially someone like Kelly Conway, who is as good as her job as as anyone I've ever seen. And so you kind of know, you can watch a lot of interviews and say, oh, she's got a thousand moves. Yeah. And uh, you kind of have to be ready for all of them. So. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a tough, I mean, no no one's been able to do it yet, perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, you know the, the issue, which is, again, you know, when she, uh, in the article, I, I point out that I wish I'd brought up the birther thing. But at the same time, you know, I, I have 13 minutes with her, which is a long time for us. But you know that everything you bring up will take one or two minutes. Like if I ask her about the birtherism, she has to, I have to give her time to answer it. Right. And then that means you sort of get to less. Yeah. And you're also constantly processing this idea of there's nothing I'm going to say to her that's going to make her say, oh, you know what? That is hypocrisy on yeah. our part. I apologize. Yeah. So you kind of are picking your battles. Um, but that is one that, I, you know, I came back to the office and sort of thought, ah, let him off the hook. I mean, one of, one of my takes on things and partially informed by Matt Taibbi um, is that there's a culture war, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's very real. I think like there's, I mean, I don't, and war logic goes out the window, right? So if it's an actual war, then logic won't work. On that front, I'm wondering how much criticism of the show you get or that you're aware of or, you know, how... I mean, uh, look, I don't, I don't watch Twitter in real time when the show is on because I'm asleep, but I do, like, I'll, I look at my at replies every now and then mm-hmm. and there are definitely people who... I do think there were some people who watched the show in the beginning um, who have probably stopped because the show veered so uh, hard into politics. And not just politics, but politics with a point of view that might have been different than theirs. Mm-hmm. And so every now and then people say, you know, can you come up with something to joke about other than Donald Trump? Right. Like, you've lost, a, you've lost a fan. And look, it's never nice to read that, but at the same time, I have total comprehension of the decision that person made. I mean, if you liked stories about a flat tire uh, where I'm emasculated, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that, I told that because I thought that was entertaining too. So I did kind of change what I presented, and you can't do that and not expect to, to, to lose some eyeballs. I mean, I think hopefully, you know, it was a... Uh, some positive with people who found their way to the show, who maybe when the show started were disappointed it wasn't more political and found their way back. Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting. And and, and again, I'm going to talk to Matt Taibbi about this tonight because I think he, you know, in his book, his new book, he talks about, you know, being on, when you're a reporter and you spend all your time on the same plane with the same reporters, it's very easy to, to forget that there are other people who feel different things. So right. again, there are people who are, respectfully tell me that I've lost a fan and then yeah. there are people who take a different tact and I, I I still I have respect for people who maybe aren't a fan anymore but said it in a respectful way yeah no I get that in fact like one of the I think it was in one of the monologues before the cameras were rolling when I was up here and you someone asked about a good guest and you mentioned Ted Cruz yeah Ted um, Cruz was great and it, I think you said it's because he basically he answers your questions yeah um, and another a guy who, again, um, you know, probably very few spheres of agreement for Ted and I, but, you know, really smart as a whip, very agile. I think a lot of politicians just get caught in their own talking points, and he wasn't one of those guys. And so, again, you know, at the end of the day, you're doing a TV show, and, and you hope for as informative as you're trying to be, you want it to be entertaining first, and he was really entertaining guest. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, some of this is when, when you're on the audience end as I watch things, start to appreciate people who answer the questions they're asked, and even yeah. if it's, you know, directly, um, <laughs> even if it's saying, I don't agree. A lot of these people from our past that I may have found reviled are kind of coming back as quaint, I yeah. have to say. I, I look back on some of these people, that guy's a good guy. Yeah. You know? It's, uh, well, there was a lot written during, oh, maybe not a lot, but I read a couple people making points, sort of conservative writers that I respect, who were saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't have called Mitt Romney a racist. You know, because when you did that, like they're blaming, um, and I don't, uh, I should say that I don't believe I ever did that, but I know what they're talking about. Right. And uh, it's a very fair point to make that maybe there was some boy who cried wolf situation going on. Um, it's certainly fair to criticize Mitt Romney, but, but when you take it that far and you sort of paint him as this kind of guy, the I don't, it's, he strikes me as a, a very genuine person. Yeah, yeah. More obvious now, right? Yeah. You know? Um, switching gears a bit, I have a record coming out in March and I'm just gearing up and it's like I'm starting to do the interviews and I'm going to, I just was on a radio tour and I'm going to go on tour. But you have a, you know, so the, with rock and roll, there's a release date, yeah. you know, and you're, you're pushing towards that. But you have a show that goes all year. I'm curious how you manage sort of promo stuff. You know, we have a PR department and they kind of, figure out thing. I mean, again, like, it worked out really well. Obviously, this was a situation where the New York Times reached out. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of falls in your lap. All of yeah. a sudden, you know, there's a really kind of uh, nice, thoughtful piece about our show that happens in January, and so you then don't have to stress it for a while. Right, right. You kind of say, okay, well, this will be our thing, and then maybe, you know, hopefully something comes up in April or May that is interesting enough about our show that somebody else wants to sit down and talk to us. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's kind of this just like rolling, but you don't overdo it. Um, you told me a few weeks ago that uh, you thought that the, the, the skit on SNL with Casey Affleck and the Dunkin' Donuts yeah. was, and I, I, I hadn't seen it then, but I watched it, and it, indeed it is amazing. And you said that's like, if you were on SNL, you'd think that that was like a once in a year kind of thing. Yeah. Or like a, yeah, certainly. I mean, I feel like 10 of those a year, maybe. Okay, but, 10 of those yeah. a year. Okay, that, but not often. Those no. are, you know, do you have like one thing in your SNL years that you think like, uh, that you think of like that that one nail or like is there is there any I'm sure you have a number but is no, there no but now, I guess now that you're saying it I realize maybe one a year is right because I don't have that many I did a, I will say there was a, I wrote a sketch for Louis C.K. where he played Abraham Lincoln mm -hmm. but it was Abraham Lincoln shot as Louis like it was basically an episode yeah. of Louis but he played Abraham Lincoln yep and. Uh, it was really beautifully directed, and it was so. It was Abraham Lincoln doing stand up as well. Yeah, and uh, Louis, of course, was then like quickly writing stand up as Abraham Lincoln. But it was one of those ideas. Pretty much as soon as I had it, I thought would be great. It's going to be good. And when we did it at the table, it was it was that real. Where the greatest feeling you can have at SNL is on Wednesday at the table read when you write something that surprises people who do it for a living. Right. Like when people realized what it was, there was a real, um, I just remember both sort of Sudeikis and Hayter delighting and there's no higher praise for somebody like me than to see guys like that have a real like, oh, this is really caught yeah. me off guard. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think songs in some way work that way too. It's like if you're recording, you show them, you show your guys that, 
the ones that really end up being memorable most likely are ones you don't slave over. Like yeah. you're just like, this works, and oh, yeah. everyone sort of knows what to play and mm-hmm. knows what the song means, and you do it. I one of the things uh, I would say when people would ask me, like, give me an idea for a sketch, and say like, we have this idea, and we think it's really funny, but we've been like talking about it for an hour. I feel like if you can't come up with two great jokes in twenty minutes, just bail, right? Because comedy doesn't work uphill particularly well, and I think sometimes when you see uh, the work the most at places like SNL are in things like the monologue where that is the highest level of difficulty that you're asking of somebody who maybe has never done stand-up or live comedy or any of those things. And that's where you really sometimes see writing because there has to be a monologue. And so it was kind of rolling uphill, whereas the best sketches, again, Dunkin' Donuts commercial, A, was perfectly executed, but I'm sure when they had the idea, like I'm sure they had 10 other great jokes that got cut. Sure. Because somebody brilliantly thought of an incredibly fertile area. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great, great right. part to stop. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I'm really happy. This was really cool. This is Nick Dawson from Talk Has Film, and you've been listening to Craig Finn and Seth Myers on the Talk Has Film podcast. This episode was engineered by Talk Has podcast producer Alia Einhorn and edited by Mark Yoshizumi. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkhouse.com slash film. Subscribe to Talkhouse Film and Talkhouse Music Podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review as it helps others find the podcast. Next week, on the 25th anniversary of the release of Wayne's World, a conversation between the film's director Penelope Spheris and filmmaker and major Wayne's World fan, Jeannie Finley. <laughs>